A couple of years ago, uh, Catherine Norbury told me a story. Um, and as, as people often do when you've written a memoir, they say, I've had an interesting life. Let me tell you about my interesting life. And you kind of go, okay. Um, and Catherine Norby started talking. Um, and I didn't want her story to end. And when she got to um, what seems to me to be the end of her story, I said, you have to write a memoir. You have to tell your story. Um, and she said, funny enough, that's what I'm doing. Um, and I'm glad that she did. Um, the Fish Ladder, which is, which is here, um, is her quest to find the mother who gave her up, to find the source of her own story and of various rivers. Um, and it's wonderful that we have this incredible river behind us tonight, artfully arranged suitably. It's a beautiful book, it's a heartbreaking book, and she's here tonight to take us on a bit of her journey. Please welcome Catherine Norbury. <laughs> Um, this book began as a series of journeys and uh, originally I had this idea that I was going to follow a river in Scotland from the sea to the source, inspired by a novel by a writer called Neil Gunn, who'd written a wonderful book called The Well at the World's End, about an academic of a certain age who realises that, oh, he has this sort of indeterminate feeling that there's something just beyond his reach and he needs to reach for it and he can't articulate it in any better way than this idea of a well at the world's end. Uh, and so I'd read this book and I thought, well, that's marvelous, I'll do this journey. Uh, and then I gave the book to a friend and it went out of print. And so I couldn't, so I was left then with this sort of strange sense of kind of sehnsucht and longing for this story that I'd read and had captured me, but now I couldn't find anymore. Uh, now Gunn had written a second book called uh, The Highland River and in all of his books, very like Thomas Hardy, the same landscape appears again and again and again. So once you uh, are familiar with one book um, in place, you, you'll find the same uh, f geographical features in all of them. And this river runs through all of his books, the Dunbeath Water, uh, which is rather splendidly um, uh, sort of appears in the, in the uh, what do you call that? The um, end, papers. end papers, the beautiful end papers of this book. So m most of the book, uh, you can see where I've sort of bent the page over, is, is me failing to achieve this uh, with my daughter, failing to, failing to find the Dunbeath water, failing to get Scotland. But eventually, uh, I, I did it. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit from uh, when I finally realised that I'm now two days away uh, in driving uh, from Dunbeath. And I'm in Aviemore. Those of you who know the Cairngorms will know that it's a sort of camping skiing place in the middle of the Cairngorms and I got to I realized this was going to be the last camping shop that I would get to before I actually reached this river uh, and I arrived 10 minutes before it's about to close the shopkeeper found a map of Dunbeath and opened it out so we could check it had the river on it I'd been driving all day and I need glasses but my first impression was that most of the page was blank I thought perhaps some of the colors hadn't come out do you mind if we move it closer to the window, I asked. The shopkeeper carried it as though it were an origami swan's nest and had laid it in a rectangle of sunlight. This initially bleached the paper further, but my eyes were becoming accustomed to the whiteness. It was the right map. At one corner of the sheet was a wedge of blue, the sea. Along the coast ran the A9, long and lovely, and pink as bitten candy floss. The fishing town of Dunbeath was there, and the knotty blue squiggle of the river. 
To begin with, there were woods on either side of the strath, a few buildings, some ruins, old shilings, burnt mound, standing stone. But that was all. Much further north, there was a forest in green and some terracotta web-like contours. The white areas must have been moorland, and yes, there were blue tufts, hard to see and discreet as fallen eyelashes. It was a bog. As the contours snagged together where the land began to rise, I made out clusters of blue spots, half the size of sequins and random as spattered ink, and the words duvlochs. What are duvlochs? I asked. Black water, said the shopkeeper. I had no idea what he was talking about. Sometimes they're only a few feet across, but the waterhead is like a sponge. It's full of holes. Stay away from them and use a stick to measure depth, even if it looks like a puddle. I felt a flicker of fear behind my pubic bone, as though an oil lamp containing my essence had been knocked. It's all right, I said. I'm going to be following the river. I traced the blue line as it coiled and bent over the folds in the page through the slowly rising landscape. As it wound higher, it was joined by tributaries. When that happened, when that happened, its pathway grew deceptive, labyrinthine, the lines of water as evenly balanced as fingers on hands, so that it was not clear which stream led to the source. There was no lock, no thumbnail oval, just a petering out among the scattered pools in a frightening, lonely emptiness. Had I seen the map two months ago, when I began my journey north, I would never have come this far. I wasn't certain whether the new knowledge was an advantage, or if I would have been better driving to Dumbeath without a map and simply following the water. I hoped that when I found the place where the tributaries joined the river that the right path would become apparent to me. The shopkeeper had been kind, but he wanted to go home. I thanked him and left with the map and the survival bag and headed back to Granton-on-Spey. Uh, now, in Granton-on-Spey, which is about 15 minutes up the road, I go down to the river. I've got a couple of hours before uh, supper, and so I tried to find the pl place where, years before, I'd caught my first trout. Uh, our family used to go and take over this sort of little highland hotel. Uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. It, it was basically us, and then this fisherman called Mr. Yields. And the first year that we were there, Mr. Yields brought Mrs. Yields with him. Uh, and in subsequent years, he always came alone uh, because she maintained that the Highlands didn't agree with her. Um, and so I've just walked down to the river. Same night. I tried to find the place where I'd caught my first trout. I was seven years younger than my brother and was often left behind when he and my cousins, who were all of a similar age, went on expeditions. Sometimes Mr. Yields would take me fishing. I recalled at the end of one such afternoon my Auntie Marge making her way towards the water's edge in a PVC cream mac, approaching warily yet sassily in inappropriate heels, her smile of a million streak, her unnecessary sunglasses glinting in the pale light. Mum and her sister shared Scottish-Welsh descent. Mum was the Scot with the light brown hair and soft blue eyes of her grandmother and Damien. Uh, Mum was gentle, her features delicate, finely boned. She was at home on the moors, in the mountains, outside. My aunt was tall yet voluptuous with raven hair and took after her great-grandfather, a Welshman called Evan Evans. I felt certain I'd seen a photograph of Marge as a young girl wearing a tall Welsh hat, a wool shawl pulled tight around her shoulders. But by the 1970s, she was most at ease with a cocktail in her hand, fingers curved around a highball glass, her nails a calling red. 
for the very first time, it struck me that this occurrence might have been unusual. Auntie Marge coming down to the river, and she and Mr. Yields wandering off, leaving me to oversee the rods. Now you watch the lines, keep your eye on the float, and then they'd come back a while later. I remember sheltering from the rain in a wooden fisherman's hut, alone, alone, a few days before the fishing trip with Mr. Yields, my grandfather, who always carried a pearl-handled knife, ostensibly for cutting apples, had carved our initials and closed them in a heart on one of the upright posts of the hut. I had occupied myself while I waited for Auntie Marge and Mr. Yields to come back by inking in our initials with a biro. Spots of rain had dropped through the water's surface, making circles as big as my head. Each round band had merged with the next, forming patterns dense as chrysanthemums. The river hadn't felt dangerous to me then, not like today. It would never have occurred to me to go in or to follow the adults. I had made a prop from a forked twig to support my fishing rod and devoted myself to my cave art, my private act of vandalism. At a bend in the river, I came upon a wooden shelter. It had been extensively patched and repaired. There was no sign of a heart and arrow. I turned the memory, questioned it, for in truth it seemed unlikely. But I was cold, the rain was coming fast behind the wind, which was rising, so I left the river and hurried through the skittering forest. By the time I got back to the hotel, I was soaked. I walked up the wax-polished staircase, feeling the burnt caramel oak of the banister rail, its textured grain sticky beneath my wet hand, and at a right-angled bend met another splintered recollection, bright and translucent as film. I had a sudden clear image of myself crouching on this first-floor landing, my hair unkempt, the laces of my damp pumps dirty as worms, and watched in fascination through the wooden rails while my uncle, who was a jazz musician and had the floppy hair and angular cheekbones of Chet Baker, raised one hand in warning and argued vehemently across the stairwell, presumably in full hearing of everyone, because the space would have amplified the sound, with the waistcoated and tweedy figure of Mr. Yields, who blinked and polished his spectacles, but nonetheless stood his ground. I don't need you to teach my wife how to fish. Um, and can I? And I'm just going to read you a tiny bit now from the next day. When I actually get to the Dumbeath water, the land had been rising gently, and the river bubbled wide and shallow. But now a gorge opened in front of me; its sandstone walls tall as a church. The river opened into a peat-coloured pool, in the middle of which was an island of heaped-up pebbles. The banks on either side were smooth and grassy, but beyond the pool the gorge looked impassable, the red stone rising sheer above the river. I would have to leave the bank for a while and follow along the top of the cliff. I sat down and took an apple from my bag. The place was like a cloister, warm and green. The soft banks and quiet pool invited sleep. Brightness bounced off the water as it was whipped into peaks by a passing breeze before flattening again smooth as a new-made bed. A dark fin broke the surface, a black back sliding through sunlight. A salmon. I longed to let my arm trail in the water, to feel the salmon move against my hand, but I was captivated by its appearance of indolence, in awe of its explosive power, and I couldn't move. I found myself wondering about Finn and Cam Kinnity, a 6th century Irish saint, who was said to have been conceived when his mother went swimming in a salmon pool at night. Both Finn and Cam's acuity and his great wisdom were attributed to his aquatic parent. 
Every so often the fish broke the surface and picked off a fly, leaving ripples as round as a plate. A Scottish tale from Jocelyn of Furness's Life of St. Kentigan tells the story of a Highland queen who turned her eyes onto a certain young soldier who seemed to her spring-like with a beautiful appearance. And as a man who was sufficiently ready and inclined for such homage, he was easily made to sleep with her. She gave the spring-like soldier a ring of great value, one that had been a gift from her husband. The young man was not at all discreet and wore the jewel openly. An informer told the king about the lovers and the king invited the soldier to escort him on a hunting trip. In the afternoon, when they had eaten, the king suggested they might rest a while on the river bank, and so the two of them lay down. The unsuspecting soldier fell immediately asleep. The king saw the ring in his open hand and, although he was sorely tempted to kill the soldier there and then, he removed the ring instead and cast it into the water. When the king came home, he asked the queen what had become of the ring he'd given her on their wedding day. The queen said she thought that it was in a certain chest and went off and made as if to look for it. Instead, she dispatched a messenger to the soldier who sent word back that he had lost the ring. He then remained in hiding. Consumed with jealousy, the king accused his wife of adultery and held her under guard. He let it be known that, if she could not produce the ring within three days, he would kill her. The queen sent a message to St. Kentigan, who was living as a hermit on the banks of the River Clyde, begging him to help her. St. Kentigan, who'd already heard the story, ordered his servant to take a fish hook to the river and bring him the first fish that he caught. When the servant brought the fish, which was a salmon, the saint opened it and found the ring inside its belly, and he immediately sent the jewel with his servant to the queen. Humbled by this quite extraordinary proof of his wife's innocence, the apparent falseness of his accusation, the king knelt before the queen, begging publicly for her forgiveness and swearing that he'd put her accuser to death. But the queen wisely maintained that it was her deepest wish that the king should not harden his heart against the man, but forgive him. She then went to visit the hermit saint and made her full confession. She amended her life according to his counsel, restraining her feet from another such fall. While her husband lived, the queen never revealed the means by which mercy had been shown to her, but after his death, she let the story be known to anyone who wished to hear it. It seemed natural that St. Kentigan should be kindly disposed towards the queen. His own mother, who was also the daughter of a queen, had been thrown from a cliff for conceiving outside wedlock. When that failed to kill her, her father took her to the deepest part of the ocean and set her adrift in a leather coracle beyond the Firth of Forth without oars and commended her to the mercy of the sea. She washed up on a shore near Cool Ross and made her way to the embers of a fire which she stacked up with driftwood and then gave birth to her son. The light from the fire attracted some shepherds and they brought meat to the mother and clothing for her and her child and brought them both to the home of St. Servanus who named them and cared for them as though they were his own. With regard to the unknown paternity of the saint, his biographer, Jocelyn of Furness, simply remarked, Truly we think the matter absurd to inquire further as to who the sower was and in what manner he ploughed or even planted the earth when, by the Lord's goodness, this earth produced good and abundant fruit. Kentigan lived over 1,500 years ago. He was also known affectionately as Mungo, meaning the dear one, or darling. In spite of being a hermit, he attracted a great community around him, and this came to be known as Glasgow, meaning the dear green place. 
His community still thrives on the banks of the River Clyde. Glasgow, Glasgow, good and abundant fruit. The salmon tilted in the pool next to me. My eye caught the curve of its back as it broke the surface, and I heard a clock as it slipped away. Such a magical book, and there are so many moments like that where you take us um, on a detour. A detour that I sense is a detour for you as well, because you know you have this idea, I'm going here, and then you end up in, in all sorts of um, different places. Um, I wanted to ask you um, something about the reliability of memory, because um, you say early, er, earlier on in, the, um, in, in your reading that this seemed unlikely, and yet it was how you remembered it, and that was how you chose to write it, which is the recollection through the kind of Proustian banister. Um, so uh, the, the moments like that, do you just have to trust yourself that your recollection is, is how it was? Uh, I think you have to trust that your, election, your, your recollection is the recollection you've chosen to keep. And it, has, it is as likely to be accurate or inaccurate <laughs> as anybody else's memory. I mean, oddly, when my brother read the book, he said, why did you change the spelling of Mr. Yield's name? Because I spell it Y-I-E-L-D-S. Uh, and apparently it's Y-E-A-L-D-S. And so, I mean, I forgot him as sort of yielding in name and yielding in nature. And I said, I didn't change his name. I mean, that's how I remembered it. Uh, and I think uh, one of the things that interests me is... I find it quite bizarre that we have trial by jury because everybody's memory is so vague. I think you only reliably retain about 65% of anything you hear anyway. And every time you recall it, it gets less and less likely. Uh, so, I mean, I, th I think the, the, book, the story that fascinated me before I started writing, but it continues to fascinate me, is The Odyssey. Uh, and it is that kind of shaking down uh, to an essential truth, mm. which isn't necessarily the factual truth. And so I think, you know, some of this, this is my recollections as, as, I, as best as I remember them. But, uh, but I keep meeting people who say, oh, no, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't that day. This didn't happen then. And you think, oh, okay. Well, you know. but, but you are in search of, a, th there is a fact that you're in search of, isn't it? Which is your biological family. You always knew that you'd been that you'd been adopted, but you, but you have at different points in your life for different reasons, asked yourself the question, who who am I really? Um, you know, where are the people like me? I think that is the question that you know that's most uh, emotive. You know, you look around you at the people who love you, the people who are your family. You say of whom we speak when we talk about our family, um, and and yet you know, on, on some level, they're not your family. So you feel close to them and, and far from them, and it, it sends you off on this quest, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, actually, to this day, you know, the point that I started writing this book, I, I didn't know who I was, where I came from, what my nationality was. Uh, I knew my mother's name. I didn't really know anything else. I don't know that much more now, having been through this extraordinary journey. I only went to look for my um, birth family because I was diagnosed with a very rare and aggressive form of breast cancer. Uh, and that meant that I needed to put together a family medical history for my daughter. So suddenly this sort of vague notion that had been... You know, when I wrote the first part of the book, I had these ideas about identity. I was interested in, you know, people like St. Kentigan also having no known provenance <laughs> and yet sticking around for years and years. But at that point, uh, I, I, I still... It was an abstract. It was an idea that I was exploring. Uh, and it was only after I'd written five drafts of the book that I was suddenly diagnosed with cancer. And then I had to sort of keep going. I couldn't ignore it. What had been a meditation on identity, I, I just couldn't... 
overlook the fact that suddenly I really did need to find out who I was and where I came from. How do you start a, a quest way. like that? I mean, how do you? Where do you go to begin to ask those um, those questions? I guess your family. No, my family. Uh, we we don't talk about things. We don't talk about, and, and I think maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe it's a peculiarity of my particular family. Uh, in fact, I once. And when I first ever thought about writing, I decided to write a, a history of my family, and I was going to call it Better Out Than In. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, overnight, nobody was speaking to me. Um, that, that we, we like to hide things under the carpet and leave them there. Uh, so, no, my family, I knew that I, just because of the way they are, I couldn't ask these questions. Um, having tried once when I was 11 years old, and it was so awful and embarrassing that I just couldn't go back to that place. Uh, so I did the conventional thing. I, I talked to a social worker, um, a marvellous woman called Ariel Bruce, uh, and she found my mother in about 15 minutes, I think. And actually, if I'd bothered looking under her married name, I'd have found her in 15 minutes too. But uh, I didn't. I looked, I looked for her under her maiden name, which was a strange idiosyncrasy. And the next step from there, from her having found her, was for you to do what? Well, I, I had felt that I should write to her. And Ariel said, no, no, you mustn't write to her because this will be a terrible shock. And so she wrote instead and got the most vitriolic letter back, um, which remains to this. In fact, I've lost the letter. I don't know where it is. Um, it, it was so shocking that it, it sort of said, this is the most horrible thing that's ever happened to me. I wish to hear no more on this subject. And I'm sorry if your client wishes to know her antecedents, but um, I grew up without knowing my father, and I'm sure she can manage, was the phrase she used, without knowing hers. So and the exact opposite of the kind of dream scenario of you know, somebody being glad to no, kind no, of find that um, they've got this incredible, strong woman as a daughter that they'd you know, given up all this time ago, and in fact she's just sort of like, no, uh, yeah, I don't no, want to hear very, it. It was a very, very closed door that remained closed, which was extraordinary. And... I didn't really know what to do with it. I mean, I persisted for a while, and in the end, it just became very apparent she wanted nothing at all to do with me. And so I had this... Uh, actually, you know, David <laughs> sitting here. I had my Pink Floyd moment um, where I I didn't know what to do, and so I, I didn't have any words to describe how I felt, and so I just stayed under the shower for ages and ages and ages, having spent about two days in bed. Uh, and then I shaved my entire body from from sort of head to ankle. Um, and then I got out of the bath and sort of, you know, cleared the mirror and was about to shave off my eyebrows um, with comfortably numb going around on a sort of loop inside my head and thinking this is ludicrous and melodramatic, you know, what on earth. But I couldn't think of anything to do. I just needed to do something completely pointless and stupid. And, uh, and I did. So, uh, you know, when Rupert came home from work, there I was, uh, bald as an egg, um, which he was quite used to because I'd had cancer by then. And, and so I'd, I'd, you know, I'd spent two years without hair, so really it wasn't that different. Um, it was just a sort of uh, an unexpected uh, return. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And, and in the end, you know, we just accommodate these things. And so I, I accommodated it. I mean, you know, you can find the source of a river. You know, we we know where it is on a map. There are dangers on the way. The, the you know, the black water, and there is the black emotional water that is the danger that you face on the way to finding your mother. You find both of those those things, and I wonder how you are changed by 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 the end of the quest, by finding um, the source of the river, and by finding the source of of you. How are you changed by the by the journey, if at all? Well, I was fantastically humbled. Uh, it, it, not the knowledge in, in following the river to the source I, I just found it the most strangely 
humbling experience. What was it like when you got there physically? What was it? Well, initially, it was quite bizarre because the Dunbeath water disappears into a hole in the ground about this wide. So, you know, the, the, it's been the width of a, of a hand for about sort of, you know, hot, hot, a few hours. And then suddenly it just disappeared and into this navel. And it doesn't look like anything. And I thought, oh, God, this is just terrible. You know, this can't be it. This can't be this. I can't have come all this way. And it's not going to look good in my books. And so, it's not going to look good in my books. It's terrible. <laughs> but I'd got this book, The Highland River, by Neil Gunn, in my knapsack, which I had stopped reading because, actually, I didn't want to experience it secondhand. I wanted to experience it firsthand. Uh, so I sort of opened the book. And there at the back was this description of this absolutely extraordinary loch with crystal white shores and boulders of, of white crystal uh, and a mountain behind and you know I couldn't see any of this stuff and I was thinking am I completely in the wrong place and there was no mountain on my map but then I'd walk to the edge of the map um, and so I looked at the back of the book and it said fiction I thought well you know did he make it up oh god so um, devastating but then I sort of went back and then I discovered that he too had found the same belly button hole that this sort of river seeped out of and had had the same experience and he persisted um, he put his ear to the ground and he listened for the water and he then followed the water across this really quite frightening once you leave the safety of a river you are at the waterhead and it's full of holes and, and, and it's sort of a kind of first world war experience of sort of peat and puddles uh, and you could quite easily disappear down any of these. So I was very, very careful to, to stay very close to the sort of greenery that naturally grows above an underground stream. And after a few hundred yards, I could see that there was a sort of lip on the horizon. And so I headed for it, and it turned out to be the bank of this of this exquisite loch. And as soon as I stood on the bank, the clouds lifted, and there was this beautiful amazing blue mountain the color of you know the sky was robin's egg blue and um it, it was the it was like avalon i mean it, it, i felt you know that the, the something strange was going in fact i'd had this idea that i was going to sort of take my clothes off and swim in the loch but it was so perfect that i thought i can't do anything to disturb this stillness actually i have to stay uh this sort of so i looked at it and um and waited for a while and and then i turned around and went back i didn't touch the water i didn't drink from the water um I just uh, enjoyed being in the company of this place. It's so good when nature behaves. Um, I'm going to just take one question because we've run over time and then we're going to go to a break. Over there, yes, Camilla. Thank you. Thank so there are lots of themes in the book. There's, 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 there's grief, there's loss, there's, 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 then there's the river, there's the illness, there's trying to find your family. How do you kind of uh, bring all those together into one narrative? Um, by writing a travelogue, I think. I mean, mm. when, I, when I began writing, I, I assumed I was writing a travelogue. Uh, but I'm not that well read and I'm not that erudite. And so wh whereas other writers may have been able to draw on an enormous raft of, of literary sources, I actually felt you know, woefully under-equipped. Uh, and so I mined my own life, which was the only thing I felt confident about. And actually, in the first few drafts of the book, th there was none of me in it at all. Uh, but because I was grieving, and that's why I undertook the journeys, I realised that I seemed to be behaving quite eccentrically in wandering around the country and just sort of following these bits of water. Do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so then I felt I had to fess up. Um, and that's how, that's how those personal stories got to be in it, because I just felt that unless I gave... Uh, the reader some clues to why I was doing what I was doing, which, which is essentially because I was trying to resolve a process to myself. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't make sense. But, I mean, the, the book still has the shape of a travelogue. You know, each chapter is named after a river or a place or a, or a body of water. And uh, I think th the discipline of that structure, it's a bit like those of you who play snooker, that sort of tri wooden triangle that you can rack all the balls together with. So I used the form of the travelogue and the and the chapter titles of the rivers uh, to sort of keep together what was a quite emotionally messy journey and also it diffused it and stopped it being you know too sort of me 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 really it was uh, let's look at oh look there's a bird it's very exciting what is <laughs> it oh no I've probably got it wrong but uh. I love the idea that anybody in this room plays snooker but um, anyway um, <laughs> I just want to say you if you want to find out where she ends up and it is a remarkable destination and it is an incredible journey you must read the book please join me in thanking Catherine Norbury. <laughs>